John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I forgot one announcement. Uh, Ethan uh, asked a question of a girl this week, and she said yes. That's exciting. Congratulations, man. Do you, you have a speech or anything you want to give? Or <laughs> It's awesome. Our passage for this morning is a continuation of a longer dialogue. For those of you who maybe you've forgotten or uh, maybe you're just joining us this morning, it's a longer dialogue which covers all of John chapter 7 and 8. So if you want to read the whole exchange... Um, Take a look at all of seven and eight. We're getting near the end of eight now. And it's between Jesus and a couple of different groups of Jews and Jewish leaders. It took place over more than one day. It takes place over a couple of days during the Jewish Feast of Booths. And it takes place just six months before Jesus would be crucified. Throughout the exchange, Jesus taught things that were significantly different than the Jews had understood the prevailing understanding of the Jews in his day. And, and, and over and over then, Jesus would teach. He'd get up and he'd speak in some public place in, or around the temple. He'd teach. The Jews would push back because it wasn't what they were expecting or what they understood. Jesus would correct their correction. And in so doing, he'd under, uncover yet another set of misunderstandings that he would then teach on and they'd push back on and It just kept happening over and over. And so the question before Jesus hears then as today is, would they conform? This is a good question. We got to get this, especially in light of this passage. Would those who heard Jesus teach, which is now you and I, because we're hearing Jesus teach through his word, would they conform their understanding to Jesus teaching or would they dismiss Jesus teaching for not conforming to their own understanding? Let me ask you that again, because you and I are faced with that every time we come to the word of God, and we're faced with that all day, every day. This is the question. Would they, would we conform our understanding to Jesus' teaching, or will we dismiss it because it does not conform with ours? The majority of those who heard Jesus' words throughout his ministry would reject his teaching, choosing instead to go along with their own understanding of things or the current consensus of things. Well, throughout this prolonged interaction through chapter seven and eight, there were several, I don't know what to call it other than at least a type of breakthrough of belief. That is, there were several places where Jesus' hearers came to some type of acceptance, even some type of belief in what Jesus said to them. For instance, back in chapter 7, verse 31, we read, Yet many of the people who had heard what Jesus just said believed in him. They said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than this man has done? 
A little later in chapter 7, verse 40, it says, when they heard these words, another of Jesus' teachings, some people said, this is the Christ. And in our passage for this morning, or our passage from last week ended with the words, chapter 8, verse 30, and he was saying, the, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. What we see in this feast dialogue, or these feast dialogues, is consistent with the rest of John's gospel up to this point. As Jesus went out and taught, proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God to the people of God, as he went out and taught, a significant number of people are said to have believed in Jesus, and more will follow as we continue through John's gospel. We've seen that. But what we've also seen up to this point, I hope this is familiar to those of you who have been with us in John, is that not all belief is the same. Not all belief is the same. Even the demons believe that and shudder, James tells us. Not all belief is the same, and not every kind of belief then leads to salvation. There is unbelieving belief we've seen, and there is true belief. Unbelieving belief accepts some aspect of Jesus' teaching or authority doesn't deny all of it. There's some aspect of what Jesus says about himself or his father or us or what God requires of us. Unbelieving belief accepts some aspect of Jesus' teaching or authority, but it, it but rejects it on a, at a foundational level. Let me say that again in another way. Unbelieving belief at its core sees oneself. If you're an unbelieving believer, you see yourself, not Jesus, as the ultimate judge of truth. And so unbelieving belief says, in essence, I'll give you that, Jesus, whatever that is. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That it sounds reasonable to most people. I'll give you that, Jesus, but I'm reserving judgment on the rest. And I'm the one who decided I'll give you that. That kind of belief held by so many is useless. In fact, Grace, hear this. It's worse than useless because it keeps people from recognizing their unbelief. Unbelieving belief is unbelief. It just doesn't look like unbelief. And so unbelieving belief is in some ways more dangerous in that it keeps us from seeing that we don't actually believe. So what then is true or saving belief? In our passage for this morning, Jesus continues throughout the gospel to give us more and more of an answer to that question. And he clarifies it again today. His clarification comes in the form of a three-part lesson. Here are the three parts. You ready? And then I'm going to pray. The first part is that genuine belief, the kind of belief through which the saving grace of God flows. So we say you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. The kind of belief or the kind of faith through which the saving grace of God flows is the kind that abides in Jesus' word. Second, abiding in Jesus' word means knowing truth. Abiding in truth. And third, knowing and abiding in truth is the only path to true freedom. Those are his three lessons. Let me say them again, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to unpack them. First, genuine belief is the kind that abides in Jesus' word. Second, abiding in Jesus' word means knowing and abiding in truth. And third, knowing and abiding in truth is the only path to true freedom. Let's let's pray, and then dig in. God, thank you for your word. Again, thank you for the word of Jesus. Thank you that Jesus is the word. Thank you that by revealing this to us here this morning, with the help of your spirit, 
we might believe and understand and believe and live more in line with the way we were made to, with a greater understanding of what it means to abide in you, a greater understanding of the truth, a greater receiving of the truth, belief in the truth, acceptance of the truth, and from those things, greater freedom. We, We were meant to be free indeed. Your word this morning helps us to understand what that means, where that comes from, and how to live that out, even as we await true freedom in the new heavens and the new earth. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for songs to sing, like Show Us Christ, that ought to be the cry of our hearts. So for those whose cry it is, thank you for giving us those words to express that cry. And for those whose heart is not that yet, thank you for a description of what it ought to be. Thank you that that song is in many ways a remarkable description of what it means to abide in the word of Jesus. And we got to just sing that together. God, I pray that you would cause us to see your word for what it is, that abiding in it would be the most obvious thing in the world. That is to say, free us to be able to see what is and therefore live in light of it as we ought. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get to the first lesson and what it looks like to abide in Jesus' word, I want to step back again for a second and ask you to consider what's going on here. It's been going on for a while, and I want you to get your eyes directly on this. Have you ever been in a situation where you were the lone voice for something that you truly believed in and was truly significant? Everyone else was against your idea, or at least not willing to speak up for it. They were either either had animosity towards you or were silent in the face of opposition. If so, you know how lonely of a place that can be. And if so, you know how much even one voice of support can mean. If you're standing up and no one else is for something that matters, you know how much even one voice of support that would join you can mean. The relief and joy and encouragement that comes from hearing someone come alongside of you is hard to explain. But what if you somehow found out someone spoke up and your heart wells up and joy that someone is joining you? But what if you somehow found out that that one voice of support didn't really understand what you were saying and you knew that if they did, they wouldn't be supporting you? In my experience, the temptation to cling to that partnership, which you just found out was fake, even while knowing it was a mirage, is significant. Some form of this is what happens every time someone wants to be baptized or become a member of a church that might not be ready, and you have to talk to them about that. It happens when you speak up for Jesus in your class or in your sports team, when your classmates or teammates are mocking Jesus or some aspect of the Christian life. It's also what happens often when we're faced with the choice of addressing or ignoring sin in another Christian. It's easy to just go with the flow, not say anything, go along with things as they are, to not take a stand. But it's hard to do that. It, but it's it's easy to not. It's hard to do that. Going along with things keeps a, a fake form of peace. And standing firm almost always stirs up strife. 
Therefore, finding someone, anyone to join our side, even if they only appear to agree with us, is a huge temptation. Again, that's, that's what Jesus faced here. That's what he faced most of his ministry. While he stood mostly alone, with almost everyone angrily against him, out from the crowd came a few voices of support. Some believed, it says. Grace, if Jesus weren't Jesus, he might have been tempted to accept some flattery and fake followers to save face with the crowd. He could have tried to build a fake coalition, a veneer of a coalition to help him get out of hot water. At the very least, he might have allowed the people who claimed to believe they believed in Jesus to believe they believed in him long enough to get away from those who in just a few verses will try to stone him. He could have allowed them to believe they believe. If Jesus weren't Jesus, that is. But Jesus is Jesus, of course, and so he was entirely unwilling to dabble in even the tiniest lie. Praise him for this grace. Praise him for this. If you've been in that situation, you know what a temptation that must have been. Not necessarily for him, but for us. And yet he remained firm. Instead, caring more about the glory of the Father and the good of his hearers than his own reputation and even his own life, Jesus refused to allow unbelieving believers to remain comfortable in their unbelief. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, that is those from verse 30, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. All three parts of Jesus' lesson are in those two verses. Again, we'll look at each, beginning with verse 31, and the fact that genuine belief is the kind that abides in Jesus' word. So whatever kind of belief they had, whatever kind of belief those of verse 30 had, Jesus felt the need to clarify that the only kind of belief that matters is the kind that results in abiding in Jesus' word. To abide, Grace, get this. To abide in this sense means to remain in, to continue in, to stay with, to reside in Jesus' words. In other words, genuine belief in Jesus, the kind that pleases God and connects us with the saving grace, is the kind that hears Jesus' words. You have to hear them. Whether you were there and heard him speak them audibly or whether you hear them through the, the Bible, you have to hear Jesus' words. You have to understand them and cherish them and then live in light of them no matter the cost. That's what it means to abide in Jesus' word. Genuine belief does not pick and choose which of Jesus' words to believe or when to obey them. Of course, no one does this perfectly, but unbelieving belief makes a conscious decision not to in advance. While genuine belief truly longs and fights to obey every word and repents quickly when something gets in the way. Abiding in Jesus' word is somewhat, somewhat like this is fresh in my head, a train, following a training plan for a race. What do I mean by that? You ever followed a training plan for a race? You abide in the training plan in the sense that it's always in your mind. You're always conscious of it. You trust that by following it, it will help you get to whatever you're after. It's always your intention to conform to it because you believe it'll get you to what you're after. It's discouraging when something, weather or whatever, injury keeps you from it, and you do what you can to get Back on it quickly. What is that? <laughs> is it draining? Goodness, all right. Like a smooth running machine here. 
So when you get off it, you're eager to get back on it as soon as you can. Somewhat like that. But abiding in Jesus' words, word is also significantly different. Alex, would you close the valve on the side, please? <laughs> it's, it's on the side. There's, I don't know if you guys are hearing this, but I think it's interrupting the Holy Spirit's work in me right now. <laughs> Thank you. All right. It's somewhat like that, but also significantly different. Grace, listen to this. This, if you just sang the song, this is what you mean, or you lied. All right. That's, it's that simple. The words of Jesus, unlike a training, running training plan or anything else, are perfect in every way. For all who have ears to hear, they are the words of life. The word of Jesus is the word of life. They are the pathway to eternal joy. They are the description of how to live the abundant life that Jesus promises later in John. They warn us of danger and tell us how to escape from it when we fall into it. They correct us, they rebuke us, they equip us, and they train us in righteousness. They are living and active, and they're always perfectly able to prepare us for every good work given to us by God. They are sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. Nothing on earth comes within a million miles of them in wisdom and power and truth and beauty and goodness. And to know that, how, how would you abide in anything else? Why would you abide in anything else? And Jesus is going to tell us that in a minute because we're slaves to something else. But to abide in Jesus' word, therefore, is to recognize these things an ever-increasing depth in our very being. To abide in them means to increasingly live entirely in light of them, no matter the cost, in full assurance that whatever it costs, the reward is infinitely greater. And in these ways, therefore, abiding in Jesus' word is different than abiding in anything and everything else. And so on a very practical level, Grace, this means we can't abide in Jesus' word and show ourselves to be his true disciples as He says, if you do not read your Bibles, it sounds like something you learn in Sunday school, and it is, but you don't grow past that. Maturing in your faith does not mean moving past that. It means moving into that on a deeper level. You cannot abide in Jesus' word if you don't have his word, and you can't have his word apart from the word. Read your Bibles every day. There's probably a song about that, right, for Sunday school or BBS or something. Read them carefully, prayerfully, thoughtfully, humbly, corporately, together with other Christians and with an unquenchable desire to be transformed by them in every aspect of your being. On a very practical level, test every thought that you have against them. Don't leave stones unturned. Don't let there be parts of your life that aren't examined through the lens of the Word of God. Examine your every thoughts and feeling and action against Jesus' words. Learn to ask the questions the Bible asks. Learn to accept the answers the Bible gives. Learn to do the things the Bible commands and believe the things the Bible says and feel the things the Bible describes. Let go of every remnant that you have of the wisdom of your flesh. Worldly desires and actions abide in Jesus' word and therein know that your belief in Jesus is genuine and that you are truly his disciples. Let me say one more thing about this. If you're thinking that sounds awesome, that also sounds hard. It is. In fact, it's impossible. To abide in Jesus' word in this way is a gift from God. You can't do it on your own. It is a gift from God empowered by the spirit that is in you through faith. We cannot muster it up on our own. We would not even want it on our own, which again, We'll see in a minute 
because we're born slaves to sin. That's why the men and women hearing the words audibly from Jesus himself, the very son of God, were primarily marked by unbelief and unbelieving belief. God had not yet given them that gift. Seek that gift with all of your heart, and Jesus says you will find it. All of that then leads to the second of Jesus' three lessons on genuine belief. Jesus declared to the skeptics, he declared to the unbelieving believers, and he declared to the believing believers, those who truly believed that were present, that genuine belief is marked by abiding in his word. And then he said, as you do that, you will know the truth. This is a big deal. Advertisements are constantly before us. These video or whatever they're called, digital ones now that change even as you drive. And my understanding is coming soon. If you have a phone or something with you, it'll somehow read that and then put up on there this whatever you look for last on Amazon, just like internet browsers do. But advertisements are constantly before us, and their central message to us is this. They say all kinds of stuff, but basically they say this. If you buy our product, you'll be better off because of it. That may or may not be true. Some some of them you will be better off with in a certain way anyway. But as long as you believe it, even if it's not true, you'll be willing to purchase the product. What's more, as long as you believe it, you'll be glad to abide in that product. Remain in it. Continue with it. Stay with it. That's why certain brands have staying power long after some other brand is produces a better product than them. What maybe lacks the marketing dollars or celebrity endorsements to keep you believing what maybe was true but isn't anymore. The question Jesus' hearers need to ask, including you and me, is what makes Jesus' words that he's calling us to abide in different than the promises of advertisers? I gave a number of staggering reasons just a minute ago, but all of them are rooted in one main thing. Jesus' words are entirely true. Don't miss that. Jesus' words are entirely true, eternally true, truly true. To hear Jesus speak is to hear truth. Therefore, to abide in Jesus' words is to know is to know and abide in that which is true. Christianity, Grace, I hope you know, kids, I especially hope you know this, is not some fairy tale. It's not some spiritual lesson primarily. It is not some religious parable. Christianity is a description of the truest truth and its implications for the world. Christianity is a description of the truest truth. It's the truest story there is, the story from which all other true stories come. It's the truest truest truth and its implications for the world. Abiding in Jesus' word isn't primarily, get this, isn't primarily the right thing to do because God has the best marketing campaign involving angels and things, or because he has the power to punish you if you don't. It is the right thing to do because Jesus' word is truth because everything that contradicts it is ultimately a lie. The simple fact is this, to have found a word from Jesus is to have found truth. True disciples abide in Jesus' word, and abiding in Jesus' word is abiding in that which is true. This reality is at the heart of the famous passage that Jesus will say later in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We cannot be, grace, reconciled to God by believing lies. Jesus is the truth. As the Jews listened to Jesus' words, whether consciously or not, 
just like you and I are as we listen to these words and read our Bibles. They were consciously or unconsciously evaluating them on all kinds of levels, and not the least of which was whether or not they were rang true. Jesus made clear that what he said was true, whether they could see that in that moment or not, whether they believed it or not, and whether they cared about it or not. That is what you and I are faced with when we read the Bible as well. It is true for all people, for all time, and therefore our response to it will shape everything about us and the lives we live. In particular, Grace, by rejecting it as untruth, we remain dead in our trespasses and sins and will forever live out of sync with the design that God is, the, the design and the designer. But if we receive it as truth, it will lead us to trust in Jesus, abide in his word, live as we were made to live now and forever in fellowship with God and show therein that we are his true disciples, that our belief is genuine. All right, here's the third lesson. Jesus taught in the first two verses of our passage, those who are my true disciples will abide in my word, and my word is truth, and third, the truth will set you free. This idea needs a bit more unpacking. To abide in Jesus' word, to abide in truth, is in large measure to submit to Jesus and obey his commands. Okay, So if you receive his word as truth, much of his word is calling you to live in a certain way. That is, it's calling you to obey his commands. Now, now you're thoughtful people, right? Right? You're thoughtful people. And so if you think about this for a minute, which I'm sure you already have, you realize that is a pretty counterintuitive description of freedom. We often think of obedience as a lack of freedom, right? If you ask your kids, your, your parents let you, they let you go free, what you what they probably assume you mean is do whatever you want or make choices yourself to do what you want. So to be commanded by another, to, to have someone command you to do something is, it seems, to surrender freedom. You, you either reject what they command you to do or you're free. They don't go together, right? That's the normal understanding we have of freedom. We're either obedient to someone or something or outside of us, or we aren't, or we are free. They, they don't go together. How then do we make sense of Jesus' statement that abiding in or obeying his word will set us free? You get that? Are you feeling that? You got to feel that. The rest isn't going to make any sense if you don't feel that. Jesus just said, conform yourself to me in every way, and that will make you free. That sounds like the opposite of freedom in our normal sense of what we think of when we think of freedom. All right, the key to understanding fact that the key to understanding that is the fact that freedom isn't what we think it is true freedom grace i'm going to give you a silly example in a minute but try to stick with me true freedom is not the ability to choose between any two given alternatives it's not true freedom isn't the ability to make our own choice unhindered by anything outside of us it's not here's your definition True freedom, rather, is the God-given ability to rightly choose that which is best. True freedom is the God-given ability to rightly choose that which is best. Grace, I, I know that's a bit philosophical, but whether you saw this or not, Jesus is being a bit philosophical, so we need to do our best to follow his logic. Here's my best attempt. If you and I are faced with two choices, two options put in front of us, one that would be best, 
one that would be best, and one that would be anything less than that which is best. The only thing, got to get this, the only thing that would ever compel us to choose the non-best is not freedom, but a lack of freedom. That's it. That's the only thing that would ever compel us to choose something other than that which is best. You're in bondage to something if you have an inclination towards something other than the best. The two primary freedom lacks that cause us to choose something other than that which is best are one, a lack of knowledge of what is best. We run into that a lot, right? Or two, a lack of appreciation for that which is best. Here's my silly example. Imagine a person with who has two plates put in front of him. It's dinner time, you're hungry, two plates are put in front of you. Uh, on one is the healthiest, most delicious meal possible prepared by angels, most likely Jake smoked brisket and Meister's fresh cut french fries. I don't know for sure that's what it would be, but I'm imagining. But it's the healthiest, angel prepared, most delicious meal possible. Not just possible for you, or but possible. That's, that's on one plate, right? And on the other plate is, is maggot infested pickled kale. All right. That's the other one. And it's been sitting outside for a long time. All right. So the question is, what in you would need to be there to pick the kale instead of the angel prepared, most delicious, healthiest meal that's ever possibly able to be made? The ordinary understanding says you have freedom to choose between these two things. Or or rather, let me say it this way. The ordinary understanding is that freedom is the ability to choose between these two things. What Jesus is telling us is that's exactly the opposite of freedom. If you truly have the ability to desire more the maggot-infested pickled kale, you don't have freedom. You lack freedom. That's a big deal. That sort of shifts your world upside down if you really get it. I'm going to keep trying to help you get it. The answer according to Jesus and what would make you choose the maggot deal is not freedom, but a lack of freedom. To desire maggot-infested pickled kale over the healthiest, most delicious meal possible means the person either doesn't understand the choice in front of them and is bound by something. Maybe they're blind or they can't smell or uh, I don't know. They're, they're, they're enslaved to something that's keeping them from understanding the choice in front of them. Or enslaved to something, there's something wrong with them that keeps them from wanting what's best for them, even if they know what it is. In either case, they are not free. All right. As non-Christians, we always entirely lack both. Both both elements of freedom. We lack the knowledge of that which is best and any appetite for it. We're not born free, Grace. We are born as slaves to sin. The Bible tells us that over and over and over. Jesus is about to tell us that. In just a few verses, like many standing before Jesus and our passage, all non-Christians fail to see that which is best for them, even when it's standing in front of them. Jesus is best. But even as Christians, we often struggle with a lack of both as well. That's because as Christians, we have been freed in one sense. That's important. But also we're still being freed in another, which is what sanctification is. That's why situations arise all the time where we struggle to know what's best. We want to honor God, but we don't know what that is in a parenting dilemma or a marriage struggle or a work problem or a friend conflict. But even when we do know, oftentimes, we lack certain freedoms so that our flesh wells up in us and 
gives us an appetite for something else and chokes out what we know is best. Should I read my Bible in the morning or should I scroll through some social media thing? You know what's best in that situation, but some lack of freedom in you, some remaining need for God to free you causes you to choose social media. In order to help you see the staggering glory of this teaching of Jesus, let me bring it back to the text and the argument that Jesus is making. Jesus' true disciples, he said, will abide in his word. To abide in his word, Jesus said, is to abide in truth. And to abide in truth is to be free. In other words, true freedom is always rooted in truth. And truth is always rooted in Jesus. That's Jesus' argument. Again, it's hard to explain how truly life-changing this is if we grasp and live in light of it. There is no freedom apart from Jesus because Jesus is true and Jesus is best. Come to Jesus today and know the kind of freedom you were made to have, the kind that knows what's best and desires it above all and is able to receive it in faith as he offers himself to us. And that leads us to a familiar place and a familiar question. How would those who heard these words of Jesus respond? Were they eager to abide in truth and freedom of Jesus' word or in the lies and slavery of their own wisdom? As has often been the case in John, the answer comes quickly and tragically. Verse 33, they said to him, we are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. This really is an odd response from the Jews, which I imagine you maybe have picked up on, saying they had never been enslaved to anyone is ridiculous. It's as false as it gets. They'd been enslaved to almost everyone, actually. One commentator says this, there was, there was scarcely a major power whom the Jews had not served. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, and Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, and Syria had all held them in political captivity. Perhaps then, rather than we referring to the Jewish people as a whole, maybe they simply meant themselves, those standing right there hearing Jesus, who were physically present when Jesus spoke. But that was ridiculous, too, because you know what's going on, right? They were currently under significant Roman rule and oppression as well, right then, right now. By referring to themselves as offspring of Abraham, though, we know that they were thinking a little differently, and Jesus' response to them in just a minute confirms that. We know that they had spiritual captivity in mind. It's curious, then, that they didn't say and have never been enslaved to anything rather than anyone, but nevertheless, they believed themselves to be spiritually free already by virtue of being Abraham's offspring. And therein, participants in the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Let me read it to you. It's back in Genesis 17. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And it was a multitude of nations, in part, standing before Jesus right now. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, these people, these hearers, throughout their generations, and here's the key, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. They believe that through being participants in this covenant, they were free already, that they had been reconciled to God and were spiritually free on the basis of that. And in one sense, they were right. And in another sense, they were tragically wrong. To be a participant in that covenant 
or what that covenant pointed to is to be free. But they misunderstood who exactly was a participant in it. Because they believed they were a part of it already, by virtue of being Abraham's physical descendants, they denied Jesus' premise that they had anything to be freed from. Therefore, they wondered, how is it that you say you you will become free? In response to that, Jesus sought to help them understand a key piece of the gospel and the true meaning of being one of Abraham's offspring and an heir of the covenant promise that God had made with them to free them. Jesus answered them, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in his house in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. The two keys to Jesus' reply are these. I'm almost done. The person who is characterized by sin, who lives a life known by sin, and practice, which is what it means by practices sin, the one who practices it, who goes on practicing it, who is characterized by sin rather than righteousness, is a slave to sin and must be freed from it if they are to be free. That's what Jesus accused the Jews of doing, being characterized by sin, practicing sin. That's the heart of verse 34. But the second thing that's key to this is only Jesus, who is the son who remains forever, only Jesus can set the slave free. For only Jesus is true and best. What's more, the freedom Jesus offers is of the permanent type. That's the forever. Bringing those who abide in him into the family of God as beloved sons and daughters, no longer slaves, but free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's the heart of 35 and 36. So here's my conclusion. The reality, or this really is a remarkable passage. In it, we find that abiding in Jesus' words, word is abiding in truth. And we find that abiding in truth is the only path to true freedom. The Jews standing before Jesus failed to understand this, believing themselves to have already possessed or to already possess both truth and freedom. That's what they were mistaken about. Jesus' words were meant to help them and us recognize that they had neither merely by being physical descendants of Abraham. Until abiding in Jesus' word is the great cry of our heart, we remain enslaved to the sin we inherited from Adam. They didn't understand they were still in Adam and not truly in Abraham yet. As the Apostle Paul helps us see in Romans 9, true children of Abraham and true heirs of the covenant God made with him are not the physical descendants, but his spiritual descendants. Those who trust in God as Abraham did, and as Jesus helps us to see here, trusting in God as Abraham did means abiding in Jesus' word, the word of truth. And those who do are Jesus' true disciples and true indeed, and heirs to the promise that God has made. Grace, consider these things carefully. And consider especially the question before the Jews in this passage, will you abide in Jesus, in truth and in freedom? Or will you, like many standing before Jesus, remain in Adam, in lies and in bondage? Just as Jesus stood before those in John 8, his word stands before us today, beckoning us to come to him, for he is truer, freer, and greater than anyone and everything else. He offers us a chance to share in those things with him as his true disciples, his true brothers and sisters and children of God.